a playlist original. Just watch me. The medium is the message. Proof is a proof. What kind of proof? It's a proof. It has no core identity. Smashed potatoes are no gravy, you know what I'm saying? Speaking uh, moistly on them. Hello and welcome to Just Watch Me. I'm Kate. I'm Liv. Today we're talking about pay equity in Canada, the gender wage gap, and an equal pay for work of equal value. So we're obviously really excited about this episode um, because March is an important day for women in in many different respects. We've got International Women's Day. We've got Equal Pay Day. I don't know. There's a lot of days. There's a lot of days. So we're celebrating. (laughs) So obviously this is an important conversation for us as women. Like that goes without saying. But um, why else did we want to do this episode? Well, we'll get into this, but I think there's been a bit of a – there's been a response to um, the wage gap that there's kind of been people who are supposedly debunking it. And I think that there's been some kind of distraction and a little bit of distortion in the movement. I think some of it has been, you know, by by actors not acting in good faith. So I'm interested in teasing out the differences between um, pay equity, the wage gap, equal pay for equal work, and, and everything that comes with um, making sure – that women and especially BIPOC women get paid what they deserve. Mm-hmm. A hundred percent. And I think that, um, you know, in 2021, we, we kind of look at the situation of women and we think like we're doing okay. And we don't always stop to really, um, understand and like the nuances of, why we're not at 100% yet. And also, I think that because of COVID um, in, you know, starting in 2020 has exacerbated uh, a lot of uh, the struggles that women face, especially like taking on the burden of uh, the majority of the housekeeping work, the child rearing obligations. So I think that um, what we can expect for uh, 2021 Women International Women's Day is probably going to be like a reinvigorated spirit. I always notice like so many news are uh, news outlets post articles at, during March, and it really like I don't know drums up excitement about these kind of issues again every year. So, so I you know I want to be part of that. I want to be part of the drumming up of enthusiasm. I think that the one thing that we'll keep reminding ourselves of throughout the conversation, but I think it's really important is that, you know, the situation of uh, female CEOs striving for equal pay is not the same situation necessarily as a single mother, um, you know, who's working a a lower, uh, lower income job. And I think that that just like needs to be constantly at the forefront of this conversation is that the concerns are different and, um, the whole spectrum needs to have different solutions to the problems in order to um, like achieve pay equity, let's say. So I just think it's like an important thing to keep in mind as we go through this conversation that it's there are some initiatives that are going to be helpful, more helpful for certain groups than others. Um, and I think it's always important to like interrogate um, even like legislation that seems to be like really proactive. We always want to be interrogating and making sure that it's not just good for the people at the top, that it also takes into account um, the people, you know, who are 
like part-time workers, for, for example, and or, you know, BIPOC um, women who. Um, yeah, I think I think that's right. And obviously we're we're looking at the whole issue. But I think in this conversation, what I notice and obviously, you know, we're going to be lawyers. We're in that whatever professional class or entering it whatever but you know i don't think like successful pay equity to us does not just look like uh more women billionaires are taking you know dating apps public or uh there was an article you know you know by a great journalist um robin doolittle i think early february about um pay equity between female partner female equity partners in bay street law firms that i was just like snooze yeah (laughs) and of course that's part of the conversation but i think um because those women even though they're striving for pay equity have so much privilege you know yeah they kind of just take a lot of space in the conversation and and we're talking about this to tell you that's not what we're interested in talking about although certainly part of the conversation having a bunch of women billionaires is not is not the pinnacle of pay equity yeah, well, I think you said it more eloquent than eloquently than me, but I think, you know, you're right in that so many of like let's say like the star-studded stories about pay equity are generally about people at the higher end of the pay spectrum and it just well, it's I don't want to say it's not important, but I just think that those kind of stories do kind of push aside a lot of the nuances and problems uh that that make it difficult for women to achieve pay equity at large. Um, you know, and, and there's so many like nuances once you get to that level that are just like ugh, difficult to, to deal with. Like, you know, in Hollywood, we get all these stories. Like, I mean, I'm thinking specifically of, um, the, all the money in the world situation where it was between, um, Mark Wahlberg and Michelle Williams and uh you know Mark Wahlberg got paid for reshoots and and Michelle Williams like I think she just got like a nominal amount uh you know because she was being she got he got like a million or something for the reshoots and he, and sorry he got about a million for the reshoots and she got a hundred and yeah grand or something but like, like that. That's not a good example. Hollywood takes up a lot of space in this conversation yeah. and it's sure. like what people like forget about that is that they literally had the same agent and that should have never happened and it wasn't about uh I in my opinion like gender equality it was about having a Michelle Williams having a shitty agent that I hope she fired after um you know and so it's it's just like it's just that's not the conversation we're trying to have here today and I just want people to know that from from the get-go the other thing that I think is important is that a lot of um employment law court cases um, happen with people who are at the higher end of the income spectrum, which is for obvious reasons, because, um, you know, litigation is expensive. And generally, you know, you don't want to take like lawyers don't want to take things to court unless there's a possibility of, you know, them, (laughs) them getting paid. Um, So I think that that also is another reason why we tend to focus on certain cases that have like, you know, different issue you like you're you're dealing with different issues when you're uh when you're a high earner than when you're a minimum wage worker like that just that goes without saying so anyway that was a very long introduction but i think it does set the stage well um to get into these things so shall we start with for those newbies out there or people maybe who need a brief refresher 
what's pay equity? What's equal pay for equal work? Can you give us the rundown, Katie? So I want to apologize because the definition is a boring way to start a podcast, but I don't think we have any other choice because there's just been such a confluence of these um, and confusion, I think sometimes purposeful of these terms. And I do really want to set the stage and let us get us a bit of a footing before we really take off here. So when I think of pay equity, a lot of terms float around. I know I personally like to say this is why we need equal pay when a man does something that bothers me. So equal pay is one. The wage gap is another. Equal pay for equal work. And the gender wage gap is another. The gender wage gap, I think it's if you've ever heard like the quote, women make 79 cents on the dollar for every... And then that stat changes obviously over time. But that is the gender wage gap. That is a comparison of the median wage of men and women who work full time. I'm not exactly sure what this is at the moment in Canada. Oh, I can tell you what it was um, for 2017, which I think is actually the most recent results. And women uh, were earning, full-time working women were earning uh, 87 cents for every dollar that their full-time male counterpart earned. And of course, that number goes down know, for uh, marginalized women. Yeah, and the gap is particularly larger for BIPOC women, women with disabilities, uh, and newcomers to Canada. So what this stat doesn't account for is how women of different ages in different fields with different educations, uh, how that affects the, the wage that they earn uh, in comparison to men. Um, equal pay for equal work is an analysis of just that. It's, it's, the, or it's the idea that men and women should be paid the same amount for the same job when they have the same experience and same education, roughly. Um, now pay equity, which is what I think what Livy and I, and I would say the movement broadly is more interested in these days is, um, or is at least a, maybe a better umbrella for, for us to ground how we think about these issues. Pay equity is equal pay for work of equal value or comparable worth. Pay equity is concerned with paying female jobs the same as male jobs. It's interested in interrogating and correcting the ways we historically devalue what are traditionally women's jobs um, or what some call pink collar occupations. Um, and I think nothing if not this pandemic has taught us that traditionally women's work is some of the most important in our society, caring for others, healthcare, cleaning, providing food. You know, these are the things that, that really matter. Um, and of, you know, essential workers in Canada, more than half are women. Yeah, no, I think that that's I think that what we're going to get into also is um, really teasing out a lot of the problems with the equal pay for equal work movement, um, because although it sounds really great on paper, um, the move towards pay equity takes into account a lot of the problems with just saying we have to pay men and e men and women equally for doing the same job, because as we know, um, oftentimes they're not doing the same job. And so finding that comparison uh, of like a woman's job and a man's job became really difficult. And that's why, you know, we're moving to, to pay equity. So that's, um, you know, a really important conversation. Maybe to give one example off the top, um, if we think of like a female dominated occupation, maybe a PSW who works in a nursing home versus a male dominated occupation, like a corrections officer, you know, both of these jobs are exhausting, um, require empathy, 
are stressful and dangerous, not just during COVID. It is dangerous to be a PSW. It's dangerous to be a PSW who does um, community care, who goes alone into clients or patients' homes. Um, like, obviously, these are different positions, but, you know, COs are paid more than, like, far more than double what PSWs are paid on an hourly basis, right? So, again, with pay equity, we're talking about Thinking about women's jobs and men's jobs, and that's obviously in quotations, and, and considering, you know, how we value those, not just looking at the same jobs. Yeah, exactly. So we're saying equal pay for work of equal value. And that's and that's what like the the basis of pay equity is. So let's get into the gender wage gap. Okay, so as we said, the gender wage gap is a comparison of the median earnings between men and women who work full-time. So that statistic doesn't account for differences in industries or jobs. It doesn't account for years of experience, uh, and it doesn't account for um, differences in hours worked. Obviously, this is we're still talking about full-time, but, but, but differences in hours of, sorry, I should say paid work, because we'll talk about women's unpaid work as well. So this has led to some like debunking and calling the wage gap a myth, which it isn't. This is the wage gap. This is the, the difference in the median income between men and women who work full time. It's not a myth, um, but it doesn't account for people doing different jobs. And to really understand why women are making less money in Canada, we need to understand why this gap um, continues to exist. Okay, so there's obviously a lot of reasons. We're gonna get. We're gonna take one. In- each in turn. Um, but the first thing that I want to emphasize is that women are overrepresented in occupations that are, that are at the lower end of the pay scale. So uh, approximately two-thirds of the female workforce is concentrated in occupations such as teaching, nursing, and healthcare, office and administrative work, and sales and uh, industries. Now, the issue with that is that these jobs are notorious for being undervalued and underpaid. Um, and of course, this we know historically that the segregation of the labor market is, has been blamed on women's lack of ambition. But um, it is more likely that unskilled female laborers tend towards roles that um, resemble domestic work, I think is the first point, right? Um, women are, are drifting, especially women who don't necessarily pursue higher education, are drifting towards um, jobs and skills that they feel comfortable with um, that maybe they've had to practice with in the home. So now women have also become the majority of the university graduates and are pursuing work um, or or pursuing degrees at a higher rate than than their male counterparts. Yeah. And part of that debunking, talking about women's lack of ambition is, well, the argument that, well, women are just choosing these lower paying professions. Women could choose to become hedge fund managers and engineers and anesthesiologists, but they're more likely to pick these professions in the, at the lower end of the pay scale. Um, but again, as Liv said, like some of these jobs that women are choosing are more like are, are more also about expectations of the social order that we expect women to be to be nurses and estheticians. Um, there's also and if we think about if we do accept that it's even a choice, part of that choice, if we unpack, we can also. I think that also we have to interrogate um, whether or not it truly is a choice as well, because, um, you know, talking like, as I mentioned before, these uh, when there are certain expectations, let's say, of, of women in the household um, to perform certain certain tasks um, that that maybe is 
completely unfair, but I think has become a big part of our um, like social identity and, and constructs that we've we've created for what a woman should be. And I think that 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 mold uh, and that expectation that society has of women have has made it um, that's made it difficult for women to maybe see outside of themselves and see outside of the role that the roles that society has imagined for them. Although we do know that women uh, now represent the majority of graduates in the physical and life science um, industries like medicine, uh, women are, you know, predominantly becoming um, the majority, I guess, of uh, medical graduates. But again, I think that as you see the specializations happen, you you see that there are, um, you know, the majority of women going into you know, family, family medicine, as opposed to the really specialized surgeries, as soon as you get to those like, um, electives, you see that there is a, a gender gap again. So it's interesting. Okay. I think this is a good time to talk about the role of childcare, uh, domestic work, unpaid labor in the wage gap. You know, women, continue to have the onus of those family responsibilities. And so it's unsurprising that women are choosing jobs also that offer better work-life balance. And I think that that's because they're so aware of all these responsibilities that they have. Right. And there's because women are still disproportionately doing the unpaid labor that's required in the home. Um, a Pew study from, I think, 2016 found that in two-parent households with parents who both work full-time, women are more likely to manage the children's schedules, take care of them when they're sick, and handle the majority of household chores. Um, and again, that's for two working adults in the home. These are these are still responsibilities which fall to women. Can I tell you something I saw? Women are spending an average of 50 hours a week on childcare and household chores. That's another full job. That's another full-time job. Like, that's insane. And that's one of the arguments, too, that that men are working more hours, and that accounts for the wage gap, which is not true. They're working more paid hours. But women are still, mm-hmm. women are doing all kinds of unpaid labor in the home. And as soon as women have children, it studies suggest that the, way, the women's income goes down by 17.2%. Sometimes that's because they um, end up changing careers or changing jobs because mm-hmm. they have to adapt to this new responsibility that they have. Um, and, and there's also studies of the wage gap over time shows that, that the when women are in their late 20s and 30s, the wage, the wage gap gets bigger because they're more likely to um, have to either, yeah, have to change careers, change jobs, take leaves, take time off. Um, and child rearing responsibility domestic responsibilities um end up we with we would think maybe accounting for some of that dip because as they become as they get into their late 40s and 50s the wage gap actually narrows and i think also when you think about like someone who takes uh takes mat leave or like you said takes a different position or a part-time position in order to account for um you know their child care obligations, then when that person is ready to re-enter the workforce, they're already potentially years behind, um, which is also accounting for like lower wages, right? Because they they haven't had the same experience um, in that role, let's say. Liv, any other like economic circumstances that explain this the wage gap? 
I think that, you know, on the last point before I move on to my final point, I just want to emphasize, really, really emphasize that the majority of the part-time workers are women. And part-time workers are not necessarily afforded the same protection as full-time employees or the same benefits. And I think that we need to remember that, especially when we move into our next section talking about legislation, um, because sometimes that legislation doesn't always take into account part-time workers. And nearly seven out of 10 part-time workers are women. So um, yeah, we just need to keep that in mind. But my last thing that I want to emphasize, which we briefly touched upon before, but I think really gets into the heart of what the legislation is trying to account for, is that uh, there is a lower pay in women's segregated work that reflects the undervaluing of the work that women do. And so uh, this, uh, yeah, Katie gave a great example before of, um, what did you say, Katie? I think I know people have issue with it too, but people compare. Uh, I compared PSWs and COs. Yeah, exactly. So the reason why women's work, quote unquote, women's work, has been paid less is because the skills are undervalued, right? Um, they, I, which I just, I really hate <laughs> this, and we're going to get into it in so much more detail, but it's it's frustrating because how many men do you know who like cannot cook but think that cooking is really easy or refuse to do housework but think that doing housework is easy? And so I think we <laughs> – it's very problematic, right, because like you're undervaluing skills that like – but you don't even have. You don't even know how to do those kind of things. And I think when we expand it out into like education and the healthcare sectors, um, you know, things like having empathy, men just don't seem to understand how to value that, you know, <laughs> like how to like. I thought you were going to be like, a men just don't seem to have it. And I wasn't going to correct. I wasn't going to correct you. <laughs> um, but, you know, like, I, I just think like there's like we don't we don't know how to value and we'll and we'll get into this and this might be the perfect way to intro um into our next section about the history of um the struggle for women's work to get um valued equally to the quote-unquote work of men um and we're going to talk about how uh women have fought for um recognition and different initiatives in order to value the work, quote-unquote, women's work um, in a way that's equal to, quote-unquote, men's work. And we're also going to talk, uh, talk about how the unions have been, have been important in this, in this struggle, too. In this section, you know, if you still believe that uh, women are you know, choosing low-wage jobs because they don't have ambition. Um, even if you, when you control for um, part-time work, you control for time-taking leave, you control for unpaid domestic work, you control for difference, like difference in occupations, you control for segregation within occupations. You take all that, you still have a gap. A gap persists. Um we, there are still discrepancies for women between women and men who work the same jobs. Now it's much narrower than um, that big statistic that whatever it is, seventy-eight cents on the dollar. 
Um, and then the data varies depending on who you ask, but there is about an average about between four and eight percent of a what so-called unexplained gap and or economically unexplained is in scare quotes because I think Liv and I probably probably know where it comes from. And I think if you're listening to this, you probably do too. Um, but it's an economically unexplained gap. Uh, and of course, this and this gap too is also uh, a larger for BIPOC women, we should say. Um, you probably heard something. There's a lot of these kinds of studies where, you know, a Yale study gave identical resumes with the name John at the top and Jennifer at the top to, uh, you know, to two different groups of people. Um, overwhelmingly, John was rated more favorably and was offered about four uh, $4,000 more than Jennifer. And similar studies have been conducted with white sounding names and what I think people assume were BIPOC sounding names. So despite controlling for these factors, these economic circumstances, um, and even if you truly do have the belief that women aren't ambitious, which I guess you're entitled to, um, there is still an unexplained gap that really looks like it has to be sexism in between between what women and men are paid. So this is part to to kind of harken back to our boring definitions in the beginning. This is speaking to equal pay for equal work, equal pay for the same job, um, same experience, uh, same position. I don't know if you've heard of this study that gets um, cited a lot that um, in societies that are more uh, socialist, like I'm talking about like Scandinavian countries, um, where- Which have some of the most progressive uh, pay equity legislation, which I have a little bit on. Yeah, um, where women are encouraged to, you know, be ambitious, they're given the same uh, opportunities, women still predominantly are picking, uh, quote unquote, women's work. Um, And women tend to drift towards that. And that there's a lot of people who suggest that that because that's the case, um, I don't really know what they're trying to get at because for me, I'm like that. That's not like a debunking of anything. Just because women want to be nurses and women want to be teachers, that doesn't mean they're not ambitious. Um, what it harps back to me and emphasizes again is that if that is the case, if that is what women want to do, then we need to make sure that those positions are paid fairly and that we're appropriately valuing the work that that those that those roles do because no doubt I think we can very obviously look in society and see how valuable um teachers doctors nurses are right um so also I know that that's like a something that that people are going to talk about they're going to say women want to do these things and fine if if that's the case which may or may not be um that's not a problem. Like we're not trying to say all women need to go be like engineers or, you know, like they can do whatever they want. I think the argument is, is, is twofold is that, that, that it's not always that they do have choice, right? There are, as we explained, like jobs that are more flexible are going to be um, more enticing to women who know that they're going to be taking more than their fair share of the domestic work. Right. Like, and you know, it could be that women too want to be moms, right? Like, they want to have a job that's going to facilitate them having good mat leave, being at home. And that is, 
that doesn't mean <laughs> that they're not ambitious or that they're not entitled to do those things. Um, but I think that we also want to account for uh, for the value that those people add to society, right? Let's jump into the pay equity movement in Canada. Okay, let's go. Um, so <laughs> I think that what, you know, where I think it's a good place to start is the different kind of two really broad strokes main ideology of the women who have historically organized to advocate for for equal pay and for women's rights. And on one side, we have the social socialist feminists and the other side, we have the liberal feminists and um, the social the social feminists are more concerned with um, or not more concerned, but they are not <laughs> into the capitalist systems that we have in place. They're, they believe that the um, society as we have it now is, is never going to achieve true equity for women. And so they want to uproot the patriarchy and bring in a new vision of society, whereas the liberal feminists are believe that um, you can achieve equity within our current structure and their operations and their advocacy is more based on lobbying politicians um, for for different, you know, legislation, et cetera, et cetera. So as, as much as these two groups, I think broadly at the end of the day, want the same result, the way that they're going about it is is obviously going to be at odds and has led to, um, you know, difficulties in the movement at large and some juxtaposition. We've also had, I think it goes, it's important to highlight that these these groups have historically been on not very welcoming to BIPOC women, um, which is also further marginalized them in the movement. Um, so, yeah, so I think it's just important to to keep that that in mind because different strategies are you know are working for different people in different ways. So obviously, the, the there has been a pretty long movement in Canada, um, of especially the liberal feminists pushing for legislative changes, and we're going to talk a little bit about the legislative landscape here. Um, some of the first, I mean, equal, I guess, pay equity adjacent. Uh, minimum wages across provinces. Um, in 1918, Manitoba and BC passed minimum wage laws to protect women. In the 1920s, Quebec, Saskatchewan, Nova Scotia, and Ontario followed suit. Um, but these mostly applied to uh, industrial jobs, women working in factories, which didn't obviously didn't cover farm workers, domestic workers, um, anyone working in textiles. But these policies mostly applied to industrial workers, so therefore excluded farm workers and domestic workers and therefore large uh, large numbers of men and women but but equal pay has been in has been in the public consciousness in Canada for a long time um and, and women started advocating for it really shortly after the second world war um and after the second world war we saw you know more married women entering the paid workforce and and saw you know more government run daycare centers Okay, so this legislation obviously doesn't protect the people um, who are the low income earners. And that's problematic because um, where women are like, let's say the only the only uh, earner in the family, um, that's going to 
continue to further marginalize that family and um, also kind of gets at this, the wage gap being um, and enforcing gendered poverty in the country that we have to um, be aware of and conscious of in order to make sure that these these standards that we're setting do account for the lowest earners uh, so that they can be protected at, you know, at the, at the, at the bottom. Let's get into the early, some of the early pay equity legislation. Initially, the passing of the Female Employees Fair Remuneration Act in 1951 and Female Employees Equal Pay Act in 1956 required equal pay for substantially similar work in Ontario. However, due to the problematic term of similar, substantially similar, employers were often making changes in job descriptions in order to avoid paying women equal wages, which uh, is just so nasty. So as a result, women were paid less than their male, um, than men on average for doing the same work. So uh in 1961, for example, full-time clerical workers earned 74% of their the wage of the male clerical workers. So here you have like a direct example of um, just women not getting equal pay for equal work because their employers were being like assholes, for lack of a better word. Um, despite legisl- like attempts of legislation to to make it right. Um, so although this this framework of equal pay for equal work was in theory a really good idea, in practice it wasn't benefiting the majority of the women. Um, and that was also because of the majority of the women's work being in segregated uh, jobs from men. And so there wasn't necessarily a direct comparison. So, um, you know, I think when we're thinking of like um, the steel plants, it's a really good example because um, the work that the women were doing um, was largely clerical. And then, you know, the men were um, being steel workers, doing what steel workers do. And so, you know, within those companies, there wasn't necessarily a direct comparison. And in fact, like those companies, the direct comparison was like further marginalizing women, which we'll get into. Um, And so despite this legislation being like in theory really great, you know, equal pay for equal work, um, it wasn't like in practicality doing a great service to the majority of the women. And also at this time, there was a complaint-based procedure. Um, And so what that meant is that only women with significant um, security and resources could really launch complaints. Um, Because obviously, like, you know, as soon as you're launching a complaint against your employer, uh, there's a possibility you lose your job, right? Like, it's not going to not, not going to put you in great standing at work. So, you know, launching complaints just generally is is a pretty big risk. Um, but then, you know, you can imagine as a woman who maybe doesn't have, um, you know, I mean, or anybody <laughs> who doesn't necessarily just have another job lined up, that's like a huge risk. And then like we talked about before, um, launching a complaint does take you know, resources. So um, if you're a low, a low earner, you just might not be able to afford that unless, you know, you have some kind of um, like, you know, your family's from wealth or your, your husband's making a lot of money or something like you have some kind of external resource, which obviously um, isn't, isn't going to um, help the people who maybe need it the most, you know? 
And I think that um, if we can take a little tangent on complaint-based pay equity mechanisms, is that okay? I think we'll probably divide the legislation into two broad categories, one being complaint-based, and I think you called it proactive. I think that makes sense, right? Proactive pay Mm -hmm. equity legislation. So when you have a complaint-based procedure, as Liv said, you probably have to be independently wealthy to fund it, unless you unless you have an amazing case and someone will take it on on contingency in Ontario. But there's always risk there. Um, mm-hmm. But but it's problematic, obviously, because it requires the employee to take the responsibility to drive the bus of the litigation, as we say. Um, but it also was hard because of our the way that like. Money and salary is often shrouded in secrecy. It requires you to know you're being paid less rather than um, having mm-hmm. the onus be on the employer to prove that they're that they're paying their employees equitably. And there are even I know that there are even um, some some firms keep salary confidential and require you to keep your own salary confidential. That's not uncommon, and it's I don't think it's illegal. I don't know though, so it's not legal advice. But um, and this is exactly what happened to. Lily Ledbetter. I know this is an American example, so no one kill me, but I love her name and I want an excuse to say it. And I think it's a great, if you're going to have a bill, like you want the person, you're going to hold a bill named after someone, you want it to be Lily Ledbetter because that's a great name. Um, And she is the famous plaintiff in a a big pay equity case that went to the US Supreme Court in, I think... 2009. Um, so she worked for Goodyear as a supervisor for a very long time. She was hired in 1979. She worked there for 19 years and she received an anonymous note who, which revealed that she was making thousands less per year than the men in her job and men in her same position. And only when she was getting close to retirement did she realize she was being paid significantly less for male colleagues with sim- similar seniority and experience. And she lost her suit, um, Supreme Court ruled against her because she didn't file suit within 180 days of the discriminatory policy, mm-hmm. which led directly to um, the Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Act of 2009 uh, under the Obama administration. It was one of the first things that he did, which basically changed it so that uh, the, the because there's a 180 day limitation period. This isn't too super interesting, but. Um, so there's a 180 day limitation period when you have a uh, discriminatory pay practice. So this bill basically just um, starts the clock new every time there's a discriminatory pay pa- practice because she was underpaid for 19 years, it sounds like. Um, but the problem that illustrates is that it took 19 years or, for her to learn because somebody had the good grace to tell her anonymously. Um, and the problem is that we don't know what other women and what other men are being paid often. So when you have a complaint-based system, you have to also, you don't know what's happening to you. Like you don't know the harm. And I don't know in some firm, and I'm not telling anybody who has a confidentiality clause in their employment agreement, which requires them to keep their salary confidential to breach that. But like when I'm talking to people about jobs, if someone's interested in (laughs) where I'm working, um, when I don't have that clause in my contract, I tell them what I make especially other women. Because I think talking mm-hmm. about salary is, it's, it's like really the only way, as long as it, we're, we're not breaching a legal obligation, like it's the only way to figure out what we all make, right? Mm-hmm. How can you know? Um, so that's yeah. one of the bigger problems with, another big problem with the complaint-based, a complaint-based uh, pay equity me- mechanism like this, where you have to file a complaint and say, my employer is paying me less. 
And it's a similar situation in England where you actually, because you're, you have the onus um, of proving that you're, uh, you know, being discriminated against, you have to, I think, find someone who has uh, the same job as you and then, and then they have to be making more than you. Um, so first of all, like, how the heck are you supposed to be doing that? And also like, what if you, there's nobody who's a man who's doing the same job as you in the company? Like, how do you even bring a complaint then? Um, and it's, uh, and then you also have to like know them well enough to figure out what they're making or like, like, how do you do Like, I'm literally like this, this system makes no sense because it seems to preclude like basically 80% of people from even like having a claim. Um, and then on top of it, you have to be an employee or within six months of being an employee. So again, like how are you supposed to collect this information if you've recently been let go also? Um, and um, the other thing is that there's defenses available for employers to say like, oh, it's because they work in a different location or oh, that's what the market demands or, oh, um, you know, there was a shortage of X, Y, and Z in skill and this was the person, that's what, whatever. So like basically it, the way I see it, like the employer could basically like make up any number of reasons, throw them all at the, <laughs> at the whatever tribunal um, and see what sticks. Like there is so, like, it just seems like the employer has all of the opportunities to get out of like having, to um to deal with any of those complaints like the onus in my opinion should not be on the complainant to have to like prove their case and push push it forward as you said just because like so much of this information is confidential like how if if the complaint if it's not easy for the complainant to collect evidence the onus should not be on them Agreed. And I think just to, to caveat some of the um, stuff about funding the litigation, I wish one to correct because I, I do, but this isn't legal advice. And if you, you have this kind of complaint, you should speak to a lawyer um, mm -hmm. or, or local community legal aid clinic. But I believe in the Ministry of Labor procedure in Ontario, um, you know, you can complain right to the MOL and then they do an investigation. Like you don't have to necessarily fund it unless you want to pay a lawyer. Um, but I, 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 I'm almost positive this is right, but 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 this is not legal advice if it's not. Um, in certain cases, if you do the MOL procedure, you can't have a concurrent civil lawsuit, which means sometimes when if you complain to the ministry, you get you might have a it might be a off free process minus maybe an application fee. I'm not sure. Um, you will be forfeiting your right to take it to court yourself. And, you know, the independent investigator, I mean, they're not a judge. They are not your lawyer, right? They are an independent investigator who is who is going there to, to figure it out. And if you don't have another lawyer, your employer probably has a lawyer because they can probably afford a lawyer. They probably should have a lawyer. So, you know, even where you don't have to fund it, um, there can still be drawbacks. And when you have this complaint and you're relying on a complaint-based system. Yeah, and, and to further that point too, if you need evidence and then the investigation all of a sudden reveals all this evidence you had no idea of, let's say, then – and potentially, you know, you have the opp opportunity to recover way more um, had you gone the civil route, but you just – you didn't because you didn't have the resources initially to launch it um, and you didn't 
necessarily know it, what the, what the the outcome was going to be or what the evidence would would come out what evidence would come out um that that can be a problematic thing right so anyway complaints complaint based system is a is a terrible idea yeah, we're not into it thumbs down i mean it's got its place but it's not enough right like we definitely need complaint based systems so that people uh, can launch a complaint but it's not sufficient and that's why we're going to talk now about progressive pay equity legislation uh in you know what is it what can it look like and what is it right now in canada um the problem with all of those the problems that we've talked about with equal pay for equal work now get acknowledged in a new system which is equal pay for work of equal value and so what this initiative aims to do is value jobs that are entirely different by comparing them in terms of skill, effort, responsibility, and working conditions. Um, And so as a result, this equal pay for work of equal value can work to address the problem of women's work that is totally different and segregated from that of men being paid relatively less. And this system challenges some of those structural factors uh, that are, that's reproducing discrimination. So the government of Canada committed to this initiative um, and also to action on the issue of at the International Labor Organization Convention. This principle became Canadian federal legislation through the Canadian Human Rights Act in 1977 as Article 11, which is forbids pay discrimination among men and women performing work of equal value. Okay, Liv, let's talk about the complaint-based legislative mechanisms in Ontario. Okay, so the Ontario Human Rights Code in Section 23.1 protects equal opportunity for employment. So this section, this provision is important because without equal opportunity, equal outcomes for pay equity can't be achieved. So, you know, that's at the forefront. However, it doesn't come without its problems, obviously. So the Ontario Employment Standards Act, um, subject to certain exceptions, has a prohibition on playing one employee at a rate of pay less than another employee on the basis of sex for substantially the same work in the same establishment, um, where the work requires substantially the same skill, effort, and responsibility, and the work is performed under similar conditions. So, if this is uh, if this is violated, you can com- you can make a complaint to the Ministry of Labor um, under this provision of the Employment Standards Act. But again, this Employment Standards Act provision is really speaking only to equal pay for equal work. It's not it's not pay equity in that it's equal pay for work of equal value. This is about uh, when you're paid less than someone doing substantially the same job with the same skill, effort, and responsibility. So this is a strictly equal pay for equal work, um, complaint-based mechanism. There was an important amendment that was proposed uh, to this section to ensure that employers couldn't discriminate based on employment status. But this uh, amendment was struck down by uh, Doug Ford's government. And this protection would have given, uh, sorry, this provision would have given protection to vulnerable vulnerable sectors such as part-time, casual, temporary, and seasonal workers. Um, And of course, that's cause for concern because those uh, employment status groups are predominantly female. Um, And this 
this protection ensured they would have received the same wage as full-time workers, uh, therefore giving the promise of greater pay equity. But um, alas, the section has didn't happen. Okay, that's that's that on our I guess our least favorite Ontario <laughs> legislation. Before, um, we talked a lot about equal pay for equal work. And so now with the more progressive, uh, proactive legislation, we're moving into a concept um, that requires equal pay for work of equal value. And this is a more valuable um, initiative because it recognizes the segregation of men and women's workplaces. And that, and so in order to combat this bias, equal pay for work of equal value allows entirely different jobs to be compared in terms of skill, effort, responsibility, and working conditions. Um, Yeah. And so as a result, it can address the problem of women's work that is different from men's, uh, that's being underpaid as, as compared to men's work and allows us to actually deal with some of the structural factors that are reproducing this discrimination. We should say, though, that this, because this is a federal act, it only covers federal agencies and, and regulated private firms, so like banks, airlines, telecommunications, for example, and requires them to proactively implement pay equity plans. So this is a federal program, but because we have a federal system and we have division of powers, not to get too into it, this only covers, to be honest, a very, very few private employers, this federal act. Um, because it only covers those those professions and um, those areas which are under federal regulation. So, for example, if the, the federal government tried to start um, regulating hospitals, it would probably be unconstitutional because that's a provincial responsibility. So this is narrow. It applies mostly to government agencies and a, and a handful of small uh, areas. But um, what it does is, is pretty pro- progressive. Um, it requires employers to develop a pay equity plan, identify jobs in terms of classes and the gender predominance of those classes, and then the value of the work in those classes. So comparing the female job classes to the male job classes and correcting those discrepancies where they exist. Um, it applies. It also only applies to um, employers with 10 or more employees, uh, where, it, where it applies to pub- private sector employers. A big problem with this act is that it's not yet enforced. It was passed in late 2018. It is not enforced. We are recording this in February 2021. Uh, it only closed for comment on the regulations, which would which would allow it to come in force, into force in mid-January. Um, so we do have this fairly progressive pay equity legislation in Canada for Canadian, for federally regulated employers, but it's not in force. <laughs> um, in, in a similar way to the, the federal one, this, uh, the Pay Equity Act also places the responsibility on employers to design a gender neutral comparison system that evaluates jobs on the basis of, like Katie said, skill, effort, responsibility, and working conditions. This system creates a series of job classes, and each job class is assigned points and then compared within the organization or broader corresponding sectors. The employer may phase it in, uh, but must spend at least 1% of the payroll each year on pay equity adjustment. 
uh, these pay equity plans are enforced by audits administered by the Pay Equity Commission. So we have a much more proactive uh, system from this act that will have to encourage employers to to take steps in order to um, minimize pay equity as opposed to putting the um, onus on the employees themselves, which makes a ton of sense because um, to think that you have to launch a complaint if something's going wrong um, puts your livelihood at an incredible risk. And it makes sense that not a lot of people will want to take those risks unless um, the consequences are significant, right? Liv, I think you had some critiques of pay equity, like as an idea broadly. Yes, I do. I do. Okay, so um, this is going going back a little bit in history, but um, we still have to, I think, constantly interrogate who who is on the committee. Let's say that's deciding what's similar. Um, and what points should be allotted to the various jobs. And I think, you know, if we have a committee, let's say that's predominantly middle-aged men, are these, are these um, systems really going to help us if we're comparing two jobs by proxy? Are all those um, biases that we talked about in society just going to be reproduced um, and further discriminating against women? I think that's exactly right. I think the problem is that we're de- we devalue the feminine, we devalue traditionally women's work. So the question, if we're trying to if we're trying to provide equal pay for work of equal value, we need to be very careful who the valuators are because you know, culturally in society, we have failed in my view on how we have valued certain kinds of work. And as soon as and and there's data that shows this as soon as women you know, women start in professions that start to be more male dominated. As soon as women can get in them, they start to be paid less uh, proportionally to other professions. Like the problem is in part that we devalue the feminine. So who is doing the valuing if we're trying to give equal pay for work of equal value? Absolutely. So the next thing is um, where women's salaries are determined by benchmark jobs. So what this basically means is that maybe that there's only, um, you know, the women at a certain company are all administrative assistants or predominantly administrative assistants, and there is no comparable job within the company. So maybe the company looks to another company uh, where women or where there's administrative assistance. Now, the problem is, is that if those women are also being underpaid, then the comparison is not necessarily useful uh, for any of those women uh, because it's not taking into account the um, the bias labor market conditions. Um, and so I think we we also have to be cognizant of who who we are comparing comparing and not just necessarily um, the the list of recommendations including not, using female dominated jobs as benchmark jobs when assigning salary scales um, and ensuring that there is a meaningful amount of knowledgeable women who are on those committees to ensure that um, benchmarking comparisons don't don't really exist. Okay, great. those are those are um, those are my complaints at, at this time I reserve the right for further complaints. So I don't know. we don't want to be purely problems based. What are the solutions? Is that too big? Yeah, it's a little too ambitious. I have, um, well, I do have 
Okay. Well, one solution. Okay. Actually, that's okay. I have an eye. I have one solution for us. Um, so unions have played a really large role in undermining uh, systematic biases in the workplace, but unions have historically been dominated by men. And so, um, yeah. So yeah, women have historically been also like kept out of unions. We'll get into that. So um, in in 1962, women were, were approximately 30% of the total paid labor force, and yet only 16.4% of all union members. So that just gives you like an idea of how um, <laughs> how left out of women were of um, of unions. And, you know, I mean, really anyone who, who knows about unions knows how important they are to advancing um, the um, – well, especially the historically, the the concerns of the workers, right? So, so uh, you know, uh, there were socialist groups who kind of saw this as an opportunity, as um, a way to get women's voices to be heard, and um, you know, advocated for women's roles within within well, getting involved in unions and then becoming activists uh, once they were in the unions. Um, Obviously, that didn't come without problems because, you know, if the unions are predominantly um, dominated by men, it's going to be tough for a woman to come in and um, bring forward a feminist agenda or, you know, (laughs) a woman-led agenda when you're going to be pushed back by, you know, a group of men. Um, And obviously, we spoke about why that's problematic before as well, too. So in the 70s, there was a there's a number of really um, fantastic uh, activists who worked within the the unions to spearhead women's movements. And uh, they had like subgroups within the unions too to kind of like band together, which I think really helped. Um, and of course, in Hamilton, there is Stelco and um, women were, you know, saw an opportunity to get involved. There was a higher paying job. They wanted to be part of the union. Um, so increasingly women were, you know, getting jobs at Selco, but uh, it wasn't without significant repercussions. In 1985, there was a very high profile sexual assault complaint um, at a steel mill in Hamilton, <laughs> um, which led, uh, which like spearheaded a more progressive policies against harassment in the workforce. But, you know, the people, the women who were involved early on in um, these predominantly male fields did kind of have to face some tough discrimination and harassment in order to pave the way for for future generations. And their like pioneering, I guess, um, was not without a personal cost, I expect. Other solutions? I think... I don't know. I think to each other, this is pretty small, but greater transparency. I know that a lot of, over the past few years, in certain industries, a lot of anonymous Google Docs have gone around, or Google spreadsheets, or people have disclosed their salaries. And um, and there was a, obviously a big one that made the headlines in 2018, where some anonymous, in Hollywood, of course, TV writers, actors, and assistants were sharing their salaries on a spreadsheet. And people realized that there's like, for example, uh, there was a female, you know, one of the revelations was that a woman, a woman of color co-producer on a uh, C- CBS produced CW show earned $10,000 an episode, whereas a white woman working 
on a CBS produced CW show earned, I think, 15000 an episode. Um, so there's quite a disparity there. Obviously, a lot of this is like, I think similar to me too, a lot of the this discussion in this movement has been in Hollywood um, because they're kind of, they have big, big platforms and they put a spotlight on things, but um, same. Which has its pros and cons. Which has its pros and cons. I think the same is true in sports too. We've had lots of high profile activism from female athletes uh, for pay equity, also for Black Lives Matter. Um, the U.S. women's soccer team is obviously one that comes to mind because they actually they actually brought litigation under the uh, U.S. Equal Pay Act. I think that it's it's good that that Hollywood and sports keeps putting a spotlight on this, but but hopefully that they will continue to um, spotlight low wage and lower income um, pay equity. So I would hope and ask that they you know continue to use their platform to advocate for pay we- pay equity for all women and not just, um, you know, <laughs> women in Hollywood. But but again, with the, with the Google Doc, my point was, you know, we can still be transparent with each other as so long as, you know, we're not legally obligated to be confidential. Um, yeah. and, and I think having more open conversations about salary, um, I'm trying to, to, to do that as much as, and, and it feels weird, but I think we don't know what we're making. We don't know what we're worth if we don't know what the rest of us yeah. are making. Um, I think that 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 has to be part of it. And can I also just say that I think employers need to stop asking people what they got paid at their job before too, um, because that creates the like what I said before about the benchmark effect. So if women are getting paid less um, and they're saying, oh, what did you get paid at your last job? Then it's... <laughs> I think we need to challenge employers to, to stop asking that question and for employers to give a genuine assessment of <laughs> what they feel like people are worth as opposed to um, arbitrarily picking these benchmark assessments. Well, we talked a lot about childcare and uh, domestic responsibilities. So um, having partners step up, having, a, you know, hopefully a cultural shift um, you know, of course, only for the women who, who want it. And there is, um, you know, not not to say that, that, you know, women should be working and should be making more than their husbands if they want to or making more than their partners. So in terms of moving forward, I think that I don't really see a world pay equity can exist without us acknowledging the um, the responsibilities that have to take place in the home and the responsibilities of raising children. And we can debate what the, <laughs> the appropriate solution is, but I think that we have to in some way acknowledge that, whether it's um, a government program for uh, more accessible childcare, whether it's or, you know, maybe it's that we have a wage for, for stay-at-home moms. That's, I'm sure... It's all has all of its problems, but um, I think we need to find some way to be rewarding the work that is happening in the home because society doesn't function if that doesn't happen and that work doesn't get done. Someone has to do it and we too long have just been pushing it under the rug and assuming it hopefully happens. But I think that the government, well, in my opinion, needs to to step up and acknowledge um, that that work is absolutely essential in a healthy um, society. And so whether it's 
like you said, providing universal childcare, giving women who are at home a wage, whatever. And I think that, again, that comes from culturally valuing women's work or traditionally women's work, be it paid or unpaid, as well as bringing men into that labor, be it paid or unpaid, um, allowing women to move into men's work should they want to, or traditionally men's work should they want to, should they choose to, but also making sure they're empowered to make those choices by knowing that they will have access to childcare or, or have support from uh, their partners. But again, that that too is a cultural shift. If we're not, we don't value that work. Um, and 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 hopefully, as we continue, if we if we become to value it more, there'll be political will for um, universal child care, which I think there already is, and we've been talking about it in this country for a while. Hopefully, we see movement on that. Another one would be to prohibit by law confidentiality clauses, which ex- which uh, require employees to keep their salary a secret. We should be empowering women and especially BIPOC women who are more likely to be underpaid to be at least able to discuss with the me- like their me- their community members, um, the women the in men. their lives and the men. T- t- we should be able to know what like how we should be able to know what other people are making to know whether to know be able to know whether we're underpaid or whether we're paid inequitably. Um, and. So that's maybe a policy choice. Maybe that is something that should be prohibited. <laughs> um, or, no, I think it's a good idea. Uh, or, you know, to put pressure on employers to stop, to stop requiring that those salaries be kept confidential, um, to take, stop putting or those here, in contracts. Here's something really controversial. Having like a sunshine list for everyone like just putting everybody's thing or having there be um or at least for public sector employees like literally just having everyone's salary out there and available because um i think it really could help a lot of people and i think i get why there are privacy concerns for that you know for those who know in ontario we have something called the sunshine list which is if, if you are a public sector employee, um, your salary, it, should it be over $100,000, is is accessible online. Um, people can find it and look you up by name. Now, there are, pri- I think, privacy concerns to that. And I don't necessarily think that, I don't, I don't know, I don't feel as strongly that people who don't want to share their salary with others should be forced to. I don't know if we need everybody's salary to be public, but I don't think that employers should be able, and we should condemn those who do, um, who do enforce contracts that require people not to disclose their salaries because it stops people from being yeah. able to organize and figure out what they're worth. I think that should be um, either seriously condemned or perhaps, I mean, I mean, societally and culturally or perhaps legally prohibited, but probably. But not necessarily, sorry, back on my other point, was that not necessarily like that a sunshine list with everyone's name on it, but an but the that the employer has to release like all the salaries and the job title or something like that, um, and then maybe say if it's a like a man or a woman, so that you can just like literally look up the company and see what they're paying um, this person or that person, and so that there is like pay transparency, um, but not not necessarily that people are like getting named or like <laughs> called out for their salary. Um, but just from like a purely informational standpoint. I think another way to another pressure for employers is that employers should have um, 
I mean, we certainly we have uh, like legal uh, maternity leave in that, um, but we don't have maternity leave for part-time workers, for example. That's another one yeah. too. Um, better, more protections for you know paid sick and family leave for um, part-time workers is another one. But we should also, which can be legislated. But in terms of, I think we should be pressuring employers and we should, you know, be self-selecting employers so that other employers have to follow suit, um, is require employers to be more flexible because we know that the flexibility of hours and such is a big factor for women, especially women with families. I think that COVID has has shown us that too, that it's like, it's very possible, as you say, but also can help people be more productive. Um from sometimes because they're, they're making their hours around what their family needs, you know? Um, and that, yeah, that, those, that flexibility might help women like maintain higher paying jobs because they're able to, to, you know, pick their kids up from school and still, you know, do whatever they need to do. Cook and supper. Okay. okay. If you can think of any other solutions to pay equity, (laughs) tweet at us. Um, send us an email we'd love to hear them yeah we'd love an email and um, yeah like it would be really fun I would love to hear people's stories about um, like their their own struggle with pay equity how they achieved pay equity um, in the workforce I'd like really love to hear about that as would I so we are at just watch me pod on Instagram and Twitter and we are just watch me podcast at gmail.com if you want to send us an email. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast because it really supports us. And um, subscribe. Subscribe everywhere. Thanks. See you next week.